Hey. You guys remember when I used to play music here? Yeah. That was, it was good times. Uh, it seems like it was a long time ago. It might have actually been a long time ago. I don't know. So, okay, I can't really play new stuff because nobody's really sent anything else. And, you know, I got to take responsibility for it, too, because I haven't really, like, uh, I didn't really follow up all that well with some bands when I was trying to get them to, to you know, send me some music to play. Um, I think it's equal parts laziness for between both of us. You know, the, whatever band it was and myself, I, I am also responsible. But musicians are, like, notoriously lazy, aren't we? Maybe? I don't know. So since I can't do that, um, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to talk about bands and certain songs by certain bands that influenced me when, um, you know, when I was growing up that kind of influenced me to, to play music. I don't know what word I just used there. I feel pretty strongly about the fact that I probably just stuttered my way through it. May have been a completely different word. I don't know what it was. Who gives a crap? Um, so for people who are listening to this on someplace other than Anchor, you are not going to hear songs. Um, Anchor has this weird policy about, you know, adding any songs that you have added from like iTunes or something like that, Apple Music, whatever. They just, they, they won't, it won't translate over into other, uh, places where the podcast is distributed. So... I guess you're just going to hear me talking about it. Just sort of just try to try to picture in your head what they sound like. I don't know. This is retarded. So the band that I'm going to be talking about is Nirvana. So for those of you who don't like Nirvana, I guess you don't have to listen to that. That's totally cool. I heard them a long time ago because I'm old as crap. I heard them uh, sometime around the time that Bleach was out. I think it, I think Bleach might have been out for like a year. Um, I liked the record. It was okay. I just It wasn't like... It wasn't the most exciting thing that I'd ever heard in my life. It wasn't the heaviest. It was just different. It was it was weird. I, see, I didn't know that there were other bands like in the area. I didn't know that there were uh, other bands in Seattle that were doing something similar. I hadn't heard the Melvins yet. Um, I had no idea. All I knew was that the cover looked really cool. There was a lot of hair. I was like, ah, this has got to be heavy as shit. Turns out it really wasn't all that heavy. It was just different. Um... Like in like looking back at it, there were some kind of like strange sludge elements to it. Uh, they, there were a lot of parts where you could tell that they were heavily influenced by the Melvins, and I, I guess I mean that's great. I mean the Melvins are a fantastic band, but I'm glad that they eventually sort of moved on to some of the stuff that they grew up listening to, like some you know to more punk elements, I guess. Um, a lot of that stuff. Even the mix of the two, I think maybe like Nevermind was a little more, um, a little more punk-ish than certainly than Bleach was, but I think Incesticide was probably, in my opinion, it was one of the better records. Like it had such a, a a nice mix of everything. Like it mixed in a lot of the darker kind of grunge stuff or whatever. Had some solid punk songs on it and some you know weird. it it was a it was a good record but that's not what I'm talking about I am actually talking about the period of time right before Nevermind came out so I was like 10 I think I'd already been introduced to punk bands I already had Bleach although I didn't know the names of the songs at all because it was a copy and um so Nevermind was set to be released 
I don't I don't know if it was already out or if it was set to be released, but regardless, it was this kid that I went to school with named Brandon, and uh, I guess we were friends. I don't know. He just invited me and some other people over to his birthday party on a Friday night because, you know, it was his fucking birthday. It was like skateboarding themed. We were totally going to skate, which we, you know, we did. We made messes of ourselves, but we did do it. And um, so before before my mom dropped me off at Brandon's house, <laughs> it turns out that my sister was going to go stay with one of her friends too. And on the way out, we stopped at this store for, I don't know what the fuck we were stopping for. It doesn't matter. And my sister, for some reason that I can't, I still to this day don't understand, she decided that she wanted the uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit and Even In His Youth single, like the cassette. Um, I I don't know, I didn't even know that she'd picked it up. Um, I wasn't even looking at music at the time, because, you know, at that age, I didn't want to let everybody know that I was listening to weirder stuff, because I didn't know how, like, you know, how my parents would, you know, like it, I guess, you know, to find out I was listening to certain things. I didn't have to be like, oh, you can't listen to that shit. And also, like, I, admittedly, I was, like, a super nervous kid, so I hid a lot of things about myself because I just didn't like the attention. Uh, so my sister picks it up, and I didn't know that she had gotten it until we got back into the car, and uh, she didn't even, I, honestly, I don't even know why she bought it because she didn't even want to play it. Like, she didn't put it in. It's like she just left the tape in the car. And I, I saw after we left that she'd got it, and I was like, I want that. I'm going to steal that tape. Come to find out, I didn't really have to steal it. Uh, like, my mom dropped her off. We were going to that kid Brandon's house, and I, I got the tape, opened it up, and started playing it. I didn't really care for Smells Like Teen Spirit all that much. Admittedly, I didn't really like it all that much. It was it was a solid song, but to me, it wasn't as good as even in his youth. Oh my God, my poor mom! The entire way to this kid's house, she's having to listen to even in his youth on repeat. I was so blown away by the song. I can't even begin to explain how totally shocked I was by it. I thought it was that was the first time I'd ever had an emotional reaction from a song ever in my life. And I couldn't really identify what the, the emotion was, but I really liked it. So I get dropped off at that kid Brandon's house. Uh, we have a little skateboarding party. We're just cool as shit. And then I, I made everybody listen to Even in His Youth, and nobody gave a shit. Nobody was impressed. It floored me. I was so impressed by that song that I got back home the next day, called somebody else on the phone who I had never even really spoken to at school. And keep in mind, I'm like 10 years old. I was so blown away by it. I was, I called to me, I was like propped the phone next to, <laughs> next to the tape player to let them listen to it. I'm like, this song is fucking amazing. And they just didn't get it. They were like, yeah, okay, cool. Great. And from that moment on, I was so blown away by that song that I just, it was mostly what I listened to. And I could not, I don't know. It, it one of the things that, about the song was it, it made me realize like I can actually write music too. And it made me realize that I needed to be writing. Number one, I need to be writing music at all, even though I'm only 10. And two, really all you need to do is put emotion into whatever you're playing. And certainly somebody will get it like 10 year old me. I got even in his youth, even though I, you know, I was 10 years old and, uh, 
to this day, that's still one of the most influential songs, like personally influential songs that I've ever heard in my entire life. So I'm going to play that song. And for those of you who are listening somewhere else, you're not going to hear it. So my apologies, I guess. But go look it up. It's, it's just called Even in His Youth. If you haven't heard it, it's a fantastic song. Probably one of my favorite Nirvana songs ever. Incesticide was a great record. In my opinion, it was probably one of the best ones. I I would definitely put it ahead of Nevermind. And I hate saying that. There are really good songs on Nevermind, don't get me wrong. Drain You is a great song. On a Plane's great. Something in the Way is really good. Territorial Pissings. Um, but Incesticide had those songs that kind of reminded me of not the good era of Nirvana, but the the era where, you know, the whole band was still kind of new. Um, they were still having a lot of fun. They were, you know, acting crazy and whatever. It was it, it was just a lot more fun. There was just a a feeling of sort of new excitement kind of I, I don't know, it's it's hard to explain, but you could hear a lot of that in Incesticide, whereas with uh you know, never mind. It was really polished and it was really clean and everything was just almost perfectly rigidly timed. Incesticide, though, had a lot of songs that were probably more complex than they sounded. They sounded, you know, kind of sloppy and almost ridiculous at times, but they were really good. And some of the examples of the really good songs on there were, you know, obviously like Dive and Sliver. Um, Stain was really good. I really liked Stain a lot. That one sounded really angry. It kind of reminded me of a like a post-hardcore kind of thing. Like the rhythm of the song and the cadence and everything almost has an unsane kind of feel to it. Benison was the more catchy kind of standard rock song. And then you had, you know, Polly on there, but a different version, which, you know, yeah, I could take it or leave it, honestly. Um, Aneurysm is obviously a great song. That one's one of the more chaotic songs structurally, I guess, because it has so many elements to it. It's like so many different layers of, of uh, all the changes, all of the, so every time it changes, it changes the entire feel of the song, which is really good. It was a really cleverly written song. Um... Some of the other, like, Downer was a sort of, like, we had kind of already heard that from Bleach, but, or the Bleach era, anyway. Uh, I don't remember hearing Downer until Incesticide came out. Um, you know, there there were so many good songs on there that, um, I don't know, that it was a nice bridge between Bleach and Nevermind. And to me, the song that stood out the most, it... Probably the most emotional song on the entire record was Big Long Now. Now, according to a lot, and I I didn't realize this until I started kind of looking this up. According to a lot of people, that song was rarely played live. And by rarely, I mean like after, I think once, once Bleach was done, that was kind of the end of that song. And it wasn't until Jack and Dino, who had, you know, recorded Bleach kind of, uh, not forced, but sort of coerced Kurt Cobain into putting it on Incesticide, that it, you know, it probably would not have, have been heard if it hadn't been for Jack and Dino. I think initially it was going to be on Bleach, but 
either Kurt or Jack and Dino decided that it sounded too similar to some of the other songs that were already on Bleach, especially like the latter part of the record. Now, but in my opinion, though, that that song stood out so much more than so. I, I I feel like if I had had the opportunity, if it was my band, I probably would have swapped out one song for Big Long Now. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of makes me wonder too about the lyrics of it. There was a a line where Kurt says, um, "Please put this side on" or something. It sounds something like that, and I wondered if that was his response to Jack and Dino sort of pushing him to put that song in his side, but. Apparently, Kurt Cobain did not like it. I don't really know why. Um, that he just he didn't like it, so he didn't play it live. They, uh, they, I think the last time they played it live, if I remember correctly, was like 1987 or 88, something like that. There's one video that you can find on YouTube where Nirvana's playing in a dorm, I think, on New Year's. Chad Channing is still the drummer. And Kurt Cobain's facing the wall, and they do play that song, although it's, the tuning is different. Um, it almost sounds like they're tuned to full D or something, which was not uncommon because, you know, back then, I think Kurt Cobain was still really emulating the Melvin style, so he was, like, dropping things and playing a little more slowly. But, you know, as far as, like, incesticide bridging the gap between Bleach and Nevermind... That record does such a great job of it because there are still some like sludgier, slower songs like Big Long Now and like Aero Zeppelin. Zeppelin is it's not like super slow, Aero Zeppelin. Oh my God, I can't say that that name. That's terrible. <laughs> um, Aero Zeppelin is not that slow, but it still kind of has a drony kind of feel to it. And uh, But then like in the mix of that record, you also have songs that are a little more... Uh, that definitely could have fit on Nevermind. Like, I think Benison probably could have. You know, as as catchy as Sliver was, I don't think that it would have fit very well. Dive probably would have. And that's... It's kind of neat to think about if they had had... If they had recorded Dive with... was it? Butch Vig, I think. Um, I can't imagine how that would have sounded. It probably would have sounded like way more fierce and more... Uh, I don't know. Sharp, I guess. But I love the way that that record sounds, and it does a really good job of bridging, too, like I said. Big Long Now just stood out to me. It was so different from everything else on the record. Um, you know, Dive kind of had its own little feel. Stain kind of had a feel of, like, you know, frustration and anger, that kind of stuff. Like, the kind of stereotypical, like, grunge-era topics, I guess, of, like, angst and, you know depression and anger all of those kinds of things but big long now was different it was almost it was almost depressing it was almost sad it, it was i can't think of a, a good way to explain it other than it sounds simultaneously depressing and severely angry at the same time and so when i heard that song i realized you know as as slow as it was and as sort of simple as it was which compared to songs like you know aneurysm even though aneurysm it's the chord structures and things like that they're not really that complex but there's more going on than there was in big long now um it made me realize that as a writer you don't have to like everything doesn't have to fit a certain formula that whole record was kind of that way for me but big long now especially 
I mean, the chorus is extremely simple. Um, it's really straightforward, really stark and basic, and yet extremely powerful at the same time. And then the verse just has this sadness to it. There's almost like a like a quiet mumbling through it. It, it. There's this weird sense of like shame or sadness or something through it that it really, it, it, that was one of like a handful of songs at the time that I actually felt something emotional from, just like with even in his youth. And so at the time, I think I was maybe 12 when I heard that record. And that was really when I decided, you know, I can probably, maybe not well, but I can write music and I should because not every song has to sound like, it doesn't have to be like an in bloom every time or a lithium every time. It doesn't have to be, you know, a, a catchy, like near perfect pop song, which, you know, as heavy as Nevermind was, it was, a, there were a lot of really poppy songs on it, which is, I, I suppose, why everybody sort of gravitated towards it because it, it was catchy while simultaneously being really heavy. And, Incesticide kind of moved away from that, and I think that was that was one thing that really appealed to me at the time was like i don't have to write perfectly i don't have to write catchy all the time i don't have to try to find hooks in everything. I can just write what I feel just like with even in his youth and so that was about the period when I started really delving into songwriting and it was terrible. I was not good at it but it also taught me, incesticide taught me that you don't have to throw away everything just because you don't have a use for it right then. Like it, it, Just because it doesn't fit whatever formula that you normally utilize when you're writing doesn't mean that it's something that needs to be thrown away. And so as a result, I've probably accumulated hundreds of songs that I've done nothing with. And I've forgotten so many of them that, I mean, I've probably forgotten more songs than I've ever written, but I do try to document songs that I write just in case, because I, I may want to like disassemble one of them and use a part here and there, or you know, I may like the lyrics in one of them, or you know, whatever it is. And I, I learned a lot of that from listening to Incesticide because it was not a perfect record by any means. It had bright spots and then some parts where you're like, ah, I could probably skip this. But again, like Big Long Now is a totally underrated song, and um. I don't really know why Kurt didn't want to play it live, but you know, I guess we all have our reasons. Um, I mean, there's a there's a song in particular off of GDR's first record that I wrote that I refuse to play ever. I just it's not a bad song. I just don't ever want to play it, and I don't know why. It just doesn't I, it doesn't have the same feeling that it did when I wrote it. So it's just noise to me. So I mean, it does happen, but. It's it's unfortunate they didn't play it live more often because I would like to hear different versions of it. Although I do really like the old version of it, even though the audio quality is kind of crappy from the VHS from like New Year's and the late 80s when they played it live because it's a different tuning than what's on Incesticide. So anyway, it's a really great song. Um, in my opinion, it's like terribly underrated. Um, I don't know. It it really changed the way I I saw songwriting. That's so it it helped me and and also like when you're a teenager going to that weird angsty period, stuff like that really did help too. So it was really cool. It's one of my favorite songs. Now the last one that I really loved that I I think is also kind of underrated. It was one that I hadn't heard and I kind of heard by accident. So 
Well, it was really common a long time ago with, you know, especially with Nirvana. Uh, it was there was like this huge underground where people were like bootlegging a lot of Nirvana songs, and there were there were a lot of them that I had heard repeatedly with like different names. One of them, at the time, everybody called this song "Verse Chorus Verse," and it wasn't until I don't know like several years ago that they sort of stuck with the title "Sappy." Now I didn't know it at the time, but it, Kurt Cobain had recorded like so many versions of the song and. According to one article, I think it was an article, an interview with somebody or whatever, he had recorded it multiple times because he couldn't find the right sound for it. Like, every time he recorded it, he was kind of disappointed. Now, the, the one that I heard for the first time was, again, what I thought was called Verse, Chorus, Verse. And it was so good that it was also, like, super... And I didn't I didn't hear it again until it's like he had already died. Um... And here I was sitting on this record. I found it at a pawn shop. And I, I was sitting on this record, and it it was a hidden track on, on the record. So I had no idea what it was called anyway until I like had to dig around and try to figure it out. And then people were like, oh, yeah, that's first chorus verse. But it, it had something that was kind of unusual for a Nirvana song. Like It had a more, I don't want to say in-depth, but a, a more creative solo in it, which is highly unusual for... Kurt Cobain, he was surprisingly a good guitar player. Uh, he didn't really showcase it very often because I think it sort of went against his, you know, punk rock ethic thing, you know, where everything's supposed to be, you know, just kind of a mess and whatever, just play it and get it out of the way. Don't, you know, sit there and noodle around like an asshole and draw attention to yourself. Although that's kind of strange to think about, like how couldn't he draw attention to himself considering who he was, but regardless... It had a, a solo in it that was actually pretty haunting to me. The way it just sort of goes back and forth, like up and down the neck, and it, it sort of it changes tone. Uh, and like the, the key changes are so stark in it at times that it just it's almost depressing to hear. I mean, it's gorgeous, but it's still kind of depressing. So, I bought this record. It was called No Alternative, and I bought it because it had like Soundgarden on it. It had Pavement. Uh, it had Matthew Sweet. Screw you. I thought Matthew Sweet was kind of cool back then. Um, who else? It had the Breeders. Um, had that really good Breeders song, Iris. That was a really good song. Um, who else was on it? I'm going to look. had Smashing Pumpkins, which, yeah, yeah, I could give or take at the time. Uh, I'm not saying they're a bad band. I just wasn't really into them. Urge Overkill. They, that was, they were pretty, pretty okay back then. Um, Oh boy, Soul Asylum. Ha. <laughs> that's uh that's bad. Oh, uh, apparently they covered sexual healing, which just makes me really uncomfortable to say out loud. Anyway, so according to the track listing on Wikipedia, they it was called Sappy and but yeah, there was a, this whole like underground bootleg thing going on with Nirvana and I'd heard almost every other song except for that one. Like as a matter of fact, when um you know you're right was released like in early 2000s or something like that like they were you know kind of going on about oh it's a new song that Nirvana had recorded and it was a new recording it was one that I hadn't heard but that was one of those songs that had been circulating for quite a while and I had you know I don't know two or three different tapes of one version of that song on some of the Outsest Decide records and I think at the time they called it like 
on the mountain or something like that. I don't, I don't remember. It's weird. And, uh, but out of all of them, for some reason, I hadn't heard Sappy. And so after Kurt Cobain had passed away, it was like around Christmas or something of 94 when I had this CD going and I didn't know that Nirvana was on there. And it was just sort of playing in the background. I was playing a video game and then all of a sudden I hear Kurt sing, which was startled. It, it kind of startled me, like admittedly. Because, you know, that was, I was one of those kids that like, got pretty deeply impacted by, by Kurt's death. Because... You know, starting at, you know, at the, even at the beginning of this podcast, like I talked about, even in his youth. And that was the first time in my life that I had heard anybody singing a song with such anger about things that I could relate to. So it was weird. It was, it was really strange to feel like there was somebody else on, on earth who sort of knew what you were going through and what you felt. So, in a strange way, I almost started looking at them and some other bands as being like a type of therapy for me. And so, you know, when he passed, it was, it was pretty difficult. It was kind of hard. Like it, it was the first time that I'd ever really known, uh, like that kind of loss. Like I didn't fully understand why somebody like that, who seemingly had everything somebody could possibly want would say, well, you know, life kind of sucks. I'm out. You know, so it was a hard thing to understand at that age. Cause I think I was like 13 or something. And, uh, so here I am, like I'm playing a video game, like in my room, the CD's going. And then all of a sudden, like there's Kurt Cobain singing and like the first chord rings out and there's his voice. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like it scared me for a moment. I was like, what the shit's going on. And uh, so I heard that song and it was like, it was such a punch in the stomach. It was so like, the, the lyrics to it and everything, um, it just, it, it was it was strange. It was a really kind of strange emotional, I don't know, experience. It, and there was something about that song too with how catchy it was and how, and, and even that one kind of, sounded different from other Nirvana songs in a way. There wasn't as much aggression in it. You know, it was almost like, you know, Ben a Son was kind of, kind of tame in a way. Like it just sort of got to the point. There wasn't a whole lot of, I don't know, a lot of noise, I guess. Ben a Son was just mostly straightforward. Um, this song though, Sappy was almost like, an electric version of something in the way like it was in that same kind of vein it was it was different it was more of an emotional thing it was kind of somber it was uh, i don't know i mean there was a little bit of not really screaming it was just his voice being kind of rough but it was a really emotional thing the the entire structure of the song kind of like vacillating back and forth between sounding like it it's about to get happy and then it just drops off and it's sad again and then of course like i mentioned that solo just the structure of it has a really eerie and kind of sad sound to it and so you know i'm a kid i'm a teenager and i'm hearing this and you know he's dead and this song just sneaks up on me and uh that was the moment i realized it was okay to write something that maybe a little more uh, emotional without having to yell about everything, I guess. Because 
mostly my influences growing up were punk and you know the the emotions that you expressed in punk were like frustration and stuff like that with whatever things were um and there wasn't a whole lot of like introspection I guess there wasn't a lot of self-reflection and I guess sadness in a weird way and so hearing this song was at the time just sounded like he was just totally burying his soul and I thought that's pretty brilliant like it's okay to be sad and to write about being sad and to reflect it and to not try to run away from it or mask it with a lot of screaming and a lot of noise um it was a really beautiful song to me it was one of the uh, one of the few songs that I get in my opinion it was actually better than a song kind of of the similar emotion I guess um like in all apologies like all apologies has kind of a a sad um I don't know feel to it but sappy was to me was better than all apologies um and plus that solo is actually kind of cool admittedly it was nice to hear him sort of branch out and do something different and this is you know I've heard other versions of the song since this one and this one is by far my favorite so that's it the last one is sappy and um you know, for those of you who can't listen to these songs, um, like on different, um, I don't know, like if you're listening on Apple's podcasts or, you know, any of those, Spotify, whatever, um, if you can't hear the songs, I'm sorry, and I hate that, but go look them up. They're really good, in my opinion. I mean, I know it's Nirvana, and it's like we've beaten Nirvana to death since like 1991 or 92 or whatever it is, but there are a handful of songs that are pretty incredible once they're separated from the bulk of the other songs. So go listen to them. I don't know. Maybe they're, maybe it's something you haven't heard or hadn't paid attention to or whatever. And you know, maybe you'll like it. Who knows? Or you'll be like, wow, your music taste sucks. So whatever. Here's uh here's Sappy.